1: you are listening to tennis channel live the podcast on the tennis channel podcast network we've got the game the names and the insight you need to stay covered on all the courts
2: hello everybody and welcome to the tennis channel live podcast as always i'm your host mitch michaels thank you for listening to this week's show the sports world is on pause right now due to the global coronavirus pandemic which halted all action in the world of tennis for the foreseeable future. With an unprecedented break taking place, Tennis Channel Live focused this week on the historical context of the game's greatest players, counting down the top 100 of all time. Now, the list was formulated and produced for television over eight years ago, so naturally there are some necessary updates and adjustments to be made. But don't worry, we've got you covered. Steve Weissman hosted a discussion from the studio, along with Lindsey Davenport, Paul Anacone, Prakash Armitrage, and a couple of special guests joining throughout the week to break down the list and the current state of the tennis tours during this break. One of those guests was none other than the 2003 U.S. Open champion, Andy Roddick. Roddick checked in at number 94 on the list and spent 13 weeks at number one. We're thrilled to also announce he'll be joining us in the coming weeks on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays as a special contributor. On Wednesday, he joined TC Live to discuss how he's adjusting to life inside during this pandemic, his thoughts on the countdown list, and who are his current favorite tennis players to watch.
1: Welcome to the family here at Tennis Channel, Andy Roddick, joining us right now. Uh, we saw you—you you have a a floor director there that ha, that has set up the routine for you. <laughs> got got your makeup done, your your lighting, all that stuff. How how are things going for you? Uh,
3: all good, man. I know it's a it's a weird time. I know uh, you know we're no different than the rest of the country right now. We're kind of Locked down and uh, you know what a what a unfortunate set of circumstances we're in but um, it's a great time to uh, talk some tennis and kind of get back into it so I'm uh, excited to be here with you all.
1: You asked for a job Paul approved your resume you're set to go now Mondays Wednesdays and Fridays with us. uh, through April here on tennis channel live this week Andy as you've been watching we're, we're doing the 100 greatest players of all time a list that we made at the end of the 2011 season you were on that list at 94. What do you think about the whole goat conversation.
3: Uh, frankly I mean when it pertains to you know Serena and the, and the women's side and that that's a little clearer uh, there seems to be this this need to discuss the, the greatest of all time on the men's side. Uh, and frankly, at this point, I think it's kind of dumb. Um, uh, it, it'd be like handing out Oscars before you watch the endings of a movie. You know, it just doesn't really make much sense. And if you say one person, then the other two people feel disrespected. It's just it's just too early. And and, and before it all plays out, at a certain point, someone will say, who do you think is going to finish with the all-time lead? And I'm going, okay, I'm, I, I'm either guessing or I'm obviously a medical professional and I can predict injuries from here on out. So... Uh, Listen, I just think we're lucky to still have uh, Novak, uh, Roger, and Rafa still in the game. Hopefully, Murray gets back into it. Um, but it, it, it's premature, and I know everyone likes to go to this conversation uh, nonstop. But, um, you know, I, I just think it's too early, and there, there's too much uh, wasted breath on it at this point.
4: Andy, one of the things that I always struggle with is, you know, when we talk about this, I, I really have a hard time comparing the eras because the game mm-hmm. changes so much. And You know, one of my philosophies is I I just think that all time greats, if they're in the conversation, probably if they played in those different eras, they would find ways to play and adapt to those situations. When you look at the different eras and combine it, how do you feel about that stuff?
3: Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think something that kind of gets undersold a little bit is you have uh, the guy that just popped into my mind was uh, was Andre Agassi. And, you know, he's he's three in the world. Uh, in 1988, and somehow found a way through the Luxalon era and through kind of the the, the fitness uh, era that that, that Courier and Lendl kind of helped bring in, and and he kind of problem solved throughout his career and had uh, great success along uh, through over a long period of time. And now that's kind of become the norm. Um, you know, we 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 talk about uh, the top three guys now, and you you run out of superlatives and you run out of adjectives to explain how insane it is to play at the level they've played at. For so long I mean Pete was one of the best players of all time and, and, and Paul by the way I like working with you like this as opposed to you sitting in Peter Rogers box and judging me for four hours at a time um, but you, you know when you when you look at Pete he would win you know a slam a year two slams on, on on a good year but he would still lose sometimes he would still lose third round fourth round these guys make the semis every time it's insane.
5: Okay, Andy, Um, you stepped away. 2012 U.S. Open. Novak, I think at that time, had five Grand Slams. Did you think that it'd be possible to get to 17 and, and now possibly get into the 20s if he keeps playing and stays healthy?
3: I don't think anyone who you know says someone can get from five to twenty something is 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 lying to you. I think. I just don't think that's a you know a conversation that seems real. It, yeah I feel like these guys are almost playing Xbox sometimes with the way they go about their business. Um, but I will tell you something and and it may be a relevant story with uh, with kind of the news of the Olympics recently. But I remember uh, two thousand and twelve at the Olympics. I played Novak' second round. I was unseated, but had won. Uh, a couple weeks before and had uh, won two out of the last three tournaments I played in. So I was feeling great. I felt like Wimbledon was a place where I could still, uh, you know, maybe catch lightning in a bottle, make a bit of a run, uh, felt great in practice that week, went out second round. And Novak was someone uh, who I had had a decent record against to that point. Um, and he beat me like a drum. I was like a child on the court and I didn't play that. I, like I walked off the court, I lost two and two on grass. Right. Served average, and that's you know it's not a good, good thing for me to serve average against Novak, but uh, walked off the court and go, you know, I'm going to go out tomorrow and feel like I'm playing well. He just beat me like a drum, and that was one of the first times. The, the U.S. Open was a couple months later, obviously, but that was one of the first times where I'm going, this game is getting a little bit different than what I've been used to. These guys are playing, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of from another planet right now, and that one, uh, that one kind of hit home for me. Um, the way he was playing in that moment was, was eye-opening.
4: Hey, Andy, one of the things I've always had a hard time trying to measure and explain kind of quantitatively, the difference between very good and great, the difference to be able to execute in semis and finals of majors. You've been there. You've done it. Is there a way to categorize it clearly?
3: I don't think so. I think one of the biggest things, Paul, is 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 making sure you get to the semis consistently, maybe not having your best stuff over the first week or 10 days. Serena uh, Serena's one. 10 majors where she hasn't been playing great in the first week and has kind of worked her way into it. Um, You know, so I I think the greatness with uh, a lot of times lies in the fact that the guys put themselves in position over and over and over and over. You think of someone like Jimmy Connors doing that. Also, uh, conversely to, to to Pete, who you know semis and finals of a of a slam, you feel like he was more likely to pull the trigger and hit a 128, you know, second serve ace. He kind of had that built for the moment thing. But I think there are different ways. I think they're the guys who just got there all the time and then kind of figured it out on the back end. Um, but consistency matters. You cannot lie over the course of a two week best of five set, best of three set for the women. You can't lie over the course of two weeks. And so it really does uh, uh, kind of bear out uh, any equalizers.
5: Last couple of years, just curious, how much tennis have you been watching? Who's your favorite player to watch play these days?
3: Um, I, I don't watch too much. Uh, I, I, Andrescu, I know she's been hurt. She is exciting to watch. Bianca Andrescu. I, I loved watching her um, last summer. Uh, she she kind of brings you in. It's like she makes it a little bit of a street fight. She's happy. She's sad. She's angry. You cannot know anything about tennis and, and, and tune into her and feel like you know what's going on, feel like you're recognizing uh, someone doing really outstanding things. She's one of my favorites. Uh, I like watching, uh, uh Felix, uh, Ali Azim on the, on the men's side. I think he's got a, a, a huge upside. It seems like he has kind of easy power. He doesn't look like he's swinging out of his shoes yet. The ball comes out heavy. Uh, I feel like he's still, you know, six three one ninety, and he still looks kind of awkward and skinny, which means he's going to be an animal at some point. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot of, a lot of really fun things, uh, Uh, To watch Cocoa Golf is amazing. Um, You know, I I got the opportunity to spend a couple of, uh, uh, we we played in a couple exhibitions last year, and I hadn't met her before then. And it's a a weird thing to see uh, a 15-year-old, maybe she turned 16, I don't know, but uh, a 15-year-old at that moment, just as comfortable in a room full of people her own age as she is with 60-year-olds. It was amazing, her kind of, Uh, social IQ and navigating between the two I was really impressed with her
1: we do always hear about that maturity with Coco golf once again Andy Roddick will be joining us every Monday Wednesday and Friday here on Tennis Channel live for the next five weeks Uh, Andy, you talk about some of the players that you like watching we all know you're the last American man to win a Grand Slam singles title it's been a long time 17 years. Uh, you're good friends with Marty Fish, who uh, I think asked you for like 30 million bucks uh, a couple days ago or something like that. You, you couldn't give him that, but uh, he's now the Davis Cup captain. What, who do you think could be the next guy?
3: Uh, Marty, Marty was trying to buy the dip. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I like I like what I've seen from uh, Opelka. One of the most kind of gritty. You know, you like to kind of see those gritty, uncomfortable moments where it's not just. You know, guys winning matches because they're playing well that day. Uh, you saw Pelka, what was it about a month ago in in Del Rey come and win two three setters on the same day with a guy who's a seven foot big body guy would have been very easy to tap out of that. That actually showed me something. That was that was pretty eye opening. Beating a couple of a uh, couple of grinding. It was Randwich in the morning and Nishioka in the afternoon, which was uh, you know long drawn out points, sixth set of the day, and and had chances to win it in the second set in the final didn't convert, but even came back in the third set. Uh, that was impressive to me. I, I, I like what I'm seeing from, uh, from Opelka a lot right
1: now. I don't know, Andy. You say you don't watch a lot of tennis. That was a, uh, a breakdown <laughs> that, was that the best in the world would not be able to do maybe. so. I was in the zone that day.
6: <laughs>
2: <laughs> More from Andy Roddick later on the TC Live podcast. But up next is an update on the growing list of canceled sporting events in 2020. The Olympics formally announced that the games will not happen this summer, remaining hopeful that 2021 will be a safe and appropriate time for them to take place. John Wertheim joins Lindsay Davenport, Paul Anacone, and Steve Weissman to discuss what the postponement of the Olympics will mean for the tennis world and how all the rescheduled events might pose some problems for the tennis calendar.
1: So the news is official now with the Olympics postponing a year until 2021. What does this do? Obviously, we don't know. They haven't uh,
7: set a specific date. What does this do to the tennis calendar? Well, you you just said it. I mean, the fact that we know there's going to be this postponement, but we don't know the date, I think that freezes a lot of people. There are a lot of logistical issues here, and I hope we're talking about this a year from now. I mean, I hope this is optimistically going to go off. We don't know about eligibility. We don't know if this is going to conflict, these new rescheduled Olympics, if they're going to conflict with any of the three majors that are held between Memorial Day and Labor Day. I mean, really optimistically, in theory, we now have a bit of a gap on the summer 2020 calendar. Um, I I think we would all be very thankful if that would be filled anywhere. But again, we knew this was coming. It was just completely implausible that these Olympics could get pulled off this summer in late July and early August. But we don't know a whole lot about how it's going to look in 2021 until we have a date, Steve. Yeah, they said no later than summer 2021. So that Opens
1: up a whole lot of space, Lindsay. You're a former Olympic gold medalist, 1996 games in Atlanta. What would the decision process be like for a player, say, to choose between the Olympics and a, and a big-time, big points event on the WTA or ATP?
5: So much has to depend on where a player is in their career. Have they won an Olympic medal before? How important is it to them? Do they want to travel uh, to Asia in the middle of the summer again? That was already going to be a question – in 2020. So I think for every player, it's very individual, how seriously they take the Olympics. Maybe after missing this year, all the prize money, maybe we don't get all four grand slams played. Maybe the players choose to play on the regular tour because they want a chance to earn prize money, ranking points, or, or maybe a grand slam will conflict with the Olympics. So much is up in the air. I'm also curious to see if that means anything for this summer. Does Wimbledon push back a few weeks? Does Indian Wells try and get in somewhere this calendar? It's just a mess right now, and because we don't know the end, it's still going to be up in the air for a while.
4: And I think Lindsay makes such a great point about the end. When I flip-flop that and I look at it as the beginning, we don't know when the beginning is going to be, the beginning of the new start. And and I think that's one of the reasons – why the Olympics had to just postpone and not redate it, because we don't know what's going to start. Is it going to be in July? Is it going to be September? Is 2020 going to be a wash? I mean, there are so many unanswered questions. So to begin to plan makes it extremely difficult. Uh, Again, I always revert back to let's deal with the major issue first. Let's prioritize what the major issues are. And then once we have those kind of on a timeline and an imaginable, manageable scenario, that's when we then go down the line and start planning and rescheduling and plugging tournaments into different dates. And remember, the on the ATP Tour, these dates um, right now are fixed for the tournaments that they have over the summer and after the U.S. Open. So we're talking about trying to figure out, can we figure out a way to play Indian Wells again? Uh, we saw kind of Roland Garros's um, jump to grab a couple weeks, what does that mean? I mean, there's still so many presumptions and speculative processes. I, I think it's a little bit premature, um, but for me, the sooner the better.
1: Well, let's go back to that with Roland Garros, John, because it was one week ago today. Uh, I mean, a lot has happened since then, but one week ago today that Roland Garros came out and said, We are rescheduling September 20th to October 4th. That ruffled a whole lot of feathers, but we've had a week to kind of let it sink in. How are all these tennis powers feeling about it now?
7: Well, I think it fits into this discussion we're having that, look, I mean, as you say, a lot of feathers were ruffled by that as much because it was unilateral as anything else. That if you want to reschedule the French Open, it's one of the pillars of the sport. I think most people would say, yes, let's try to do that. But the fact that the FFT said, listen, here are the dates, we think you're going to come, and if you're not, too bad. That was something we haven't seen before in this sport. But what that did, and you're right, that was only a week ago, that set a new precedent. This is now a land grab. This is everyone for themselves. And now suddenly we have some dates, and we have some dates opening, and we have some flux here. So I think what the FFT did, I think, look, there's still going to be some blowback for that. I think there's still some very upset tours that weren't consulted. We've talked about the Labor Cup. We've talked about the other majors. But I think what that did that declared it open season on the calendar. And now, as Lindsay says, everything is in flux, and the Olympics only adds to this. And if, in fact, to to Paul's point, I mean, let's just be clear, this all presupposes that this health crisis goes away. So let's sort of keep that in mind, that we know nothing about how COVID-19 and coronavirus is going to play out. If we're fortunate enough to be in a spot, though, where we're getting back out there and some of these restrictions are lifting, suddenly there are some very attractive dates on the calendar that are open and the fft has set this precedent of listen it's every event for themselves
1: yeah and and with an event like that lindsay right it's one of the majors As, as a tennis player i'm assuming that those are the four jewels that's what you're playing for so no matter what else is on the calendar during that time unless there were two majors at the same time which i don't think could ever happen you would as a player choose the major right
5: i would think so and for the top players that's what they're playing about. So much of the focus about greatest of all time, the stats, it's all about majors, how many majors can you win? But even if you go down the rankings, I mean, prize money for the first round of a major is what, around 50 grand? No player right now can afford not to play that. They wanted that opportunity to get more prize money, especially when you consider they're gonna be out of earning from right around March 1st to who knows when. They're going to want that opportunity to go play in a Grand Slam, no matter when it is.
4: And and those those monetary conversations are so challenging, particularly for the players that aren't fortunate to have uh, huge bank accounts and huge rankings that have guaranteed them a lot of money throughout their career. I think the challenge for the players in both tours is really going to be about, you know, the process and grappling with the process, grappling with uh, FFT's decision to just kind of grab those couple weeks. Um, What does it mean for the US Open? What does it mean for Wimbledon? Wimbledon's having talks right now about what they're going to do and what their possibilities are. Um, So there's still that's just the three majors. Then you have all of the other events that are owned by um, the proprietors for both of the tours. So look, we're trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together, but all the pieces aren't even out of the box yet. So we just have to take a deep breath and uh, let things play out a little bit um, and, and hope for the best.
2: The countdown of the top 100 of all-time featured players from all eras, some of whom went on to build a lasting legacy and achieve greater popularity after they left the court. Perhaps nobody gained more fame in their post-tennis career than Stan Smith, who won two Grand Slams in the early 70s and 39 ATP titles during a legendary career. But that's not where most of you know him from. His name has been synonymous with fashion ever since Adidas attached it to an iconic shoe that continues to hold prestige and value in the 21st century. The Stan Smiths. I say the name, and you know what it is. Checking in at number 56, Stan Smith joined Paul Anacone and Steve Weissman on this week's TC Live to discuss his career, his iconic name, how that career ended up happening, and much more.
1: And now joined by the man, the myth, the shoe. Stan Smith on <laughs> Tennis Channel live Sam Solomon a.k.a. Dexter the creator one of the best at customizing shoes in the game gave you those kicks Stan and uh, I mean I would I would just keep them in that glass box. How often do you actually wear those.
8: I've actually worn them quite a bit because they're so unusual crocodile uh, they're, it kind of Reminds me of Hilton Head Island. We have a lot of alligators here uh, <laughs> but these crocodile shoes are about as unique as they get and uh, Sam is a creative genius and it's uh, it's one of my favorite pairs.
1: That is absolutely awesome. Uh, I'm hoping to get Sam to make me some uh, some kicks of my own at some point but (laughs) uh, it it won't have my name on them like yours Stan. Uh, You're the president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. You're in this list of top 100 greatest players of all time. What does that mean to you?
8: Well, you know, I think most of the players on the list, I haven't really examined it that closely, but would, would have been number one in the world at one point in time in their era. Uh, certainly Rod Laver was, was uh, if not the greatest, you know, up there in the top two or three, and, and uh, Pete Sampras, and all these players that are on this list at one point in time were, you know, the best. And so uh, it's a special list. It's always fun to be part of it. it again, it's just a matter of, generations, you know, who knows? And it's a matter of opinions and what type of style you like to play and or like to watch. And uh, and, of course, the titles you won.
4: So, Stan, I I grew up watching you and idolizing your serve and volley game as a kid. And and obviously, one of the things that I love to talk about is the different personalities of the majors. You won uh, the U.S. Open in 71 and then Wimbledon in 72. Can you differentiate the kind of feeling between winning those two tournaments?
8: Well, Wimbledon was uh, on my list as a a 16-year-old. I wanted to be uh, a member of the US Davis Cup team, be number one in the United States, win Wimbledon, and be number one in the world. Those were my four goals. And uh, so Wimbledon was special. At the time, uh, I thought that was sort of uh, synonymous with being the best player in the world. But uh, to win the U.S. Open, our own, or at least my own national championship, was uh, really uh, unbelievable because that beautiful uh, storied stadium that we played in at Forest Hills uh, was quite unique. And it was very unique the year I won it because we finished the, the tournament on the third Wednesday. And in fact, almost didn't finish. I had to finish the singles and then take a shower, do some press, come back and play in the doubles final. And uh, we ended up having to play a tiebreaker, a nine-point tiebreaker for the doubles title. We decided to split the prize money, which was about uh, $100. And then we decided to play the, for the title of nine-point tiebreaker in the dark. And we, uh, we were at three all in the tiebreaker. As you remember, it was two, 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 and three. And so uh, we had the three serves at 3-all and had an edge, but uh, we played Newcomb and Taylor, and they were able to, to win that match.
4: Yeah, it's, a, it's a great great story. You know, one of the things we love with today's uh, day and age, we like talking about rivalries. Who are your biggest rivals in your times, and what did they bring out in you?
8: Well, I guess the biggest ones were Nastasi, uh, Newcomb, uh, Arthur Ashe to a certain extent, even Rod Laver and uh, Ken Rosewall, even though they were about eight or nine years older, uh, they were still playing great tennis, and uh, those are some of my, my fondest memories. But uh, we had a lot of guys. Jan Cotis was also my same age, and we played each other in the finals of the U.S. Open. Uh, he won the French twice and won Wimbledon the year that we boycotted. So uh, he was uh, also one of my rivals.
1: Well, Stan, it is always a pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and we wish the best to you and your family.
8: Well, thank you very much. Come visit us here at Hilton Head Island uh, anytime you want. I know you have a friend that was here for a while, so uh, uh, hopefully you'll come back and see us. Absolutely. We'd Be love safe, to, Stan. would love to lot. do that. Well, take care. You know, the serving volley is one thing, but the serving return, Paul <laughs> Anacone, Became the expert in it. So Gotta uh, play with the right. clubs in your bag. You know that, right?
2: <laughs> the Tcy podcast prides itself on bringing you top-flight analysis from some of the game's most respected and established voices. This was evident on our countdown of the game's top 100 players, which several of our esteemed colleagues, congratulations, guys, were able to make. Tracy Austin, Lindsey Davenport, and Jim Currier all made lasting imprints on the sport, which they love so much, and their Hall of Fame careers earned each a spot on the top 100 list. All three joined Tennis Channel Live this week to discuss their tennis journey and how they were able to achieve success at the ultimate level.
1: Tracy, you talked in that piece uh, about your mental toughness, how that was your biggest strength. Where did that come from for you?
6: Um, I think just competing a lot as a kid. I think maybe some of that was something that I was born with. Now I counter that with the fact that physically, I'm five foot five. um, You know, Martina obviously was much, much stronger. And so that's where my asset was. Uh, that's what always was so interesting about playing Chris because I felt like I was playing someone that was a mere image. She was consistent and and precise and Martina was so much physically stronger actually than both of us. So it, it, it made it quite interesting. But the, the mental toughness was important to me because I, again, I didn't have that one huge weapon like the serve. To, to finish points with. So I had to be really mentally tough on the on those big points and be able to think clearer and make adjustments mid-match better than my opponent.
5: Okay, Trace, you know when I was growing up, I always heard about you from Robert Lansford, who had coached you
6: earlier. You were always my idol. I was curious, who was your idol when you were growing up? Liz, you're gonna make me cry. Um, actually, I loved, Yvonne Gulagong because of her style of play. Her style was so fluid and so athletic. She always seemed to enjoy playing, seemed to play with a smile, which was always incredible to me. Uh, I got her autograph. I was a ball girl for her. She was just a lovely lady, and I feel fortunate enough to have gone on and played with her, and that's exactly the way that she was. She just seemed to think of tennis as a game, and was challenged by, you know, her opponent and the different tactics that they would bring. And she had so much variety in her game. She was a, a beautiful, beautiful, elegant player to watch.
4: Tracy, I just wanted to ask you. You mentioned the mental part of it, and and as a coach, I'm always wondering. Um, you know, we talk and we see the aesthetics. You talk about Yvonne Gulaghan, Kali, call, uh, call how beautiful her game was, but the mental part of it that you talk about, do you, do you feel now like that's something that you really teach at a younger age? And if so, how do you do that?
6: It's all what's happening in between the points and trying to self coach and to stay positive. Luckily, I kind of always had that ability. I, I I'm challenged by tennis. I, I think we all still love tennis and we're still, that's why we're still involved in the commentary. You know, there's so many things that you have to manage on the court, whether it's changing conditions, uh, changing tactics of an opponent, uh, changing game styles of, of a different person that you play every single day. Uh, all of that, to me, is, is what's fascinating and exciting. And the quicker that you can realize what's going on in a match, think, how things are changing, and you can make those adjustments, the better off you're going to be.
4: All right. Tell us about Brandon. How's Brandon in that category? Come on, be honest. No one's watching really. It's <laughs> just us. we're just sitting around talking.
6: Yeah, 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 yeah. no, actually, Brandon is extremely calm. And as you know, Paul and Lindsay, there's that fine line where you want to be fiery enough and have that emotion where you're engaged in the match, but you need to stay calm at the same time. If you go deviate too much from either one of those, you're not finding that that kind of clear line. So, I will say my son Brandon I'm very proud he's, he's a really good sportsman he stays even keeled he's very smart on the court and that's one reason why I love watching him play is because he uses all of his assets and is constantly trying to poke and prod and and try to figure out you know his opponents weaknesses and it, it's fun to kind of see him play a match and you can see his wheels spinning
1: our own Lindsey Davenport and how about this we got another member of the Tennis Channel family Hall of Famer Jim Courier. Joining us now, welcome, Jim.
9: Greetings from Orlando, Florida, Tennis Channel family. How's everyone doing out there? We're good.
1: We are doing well. We are doing well. Uh, Lindsay, I, I, one of the most modest people we know. But what what do you want to be most remembered for in your tennis career?
5: Um, I'm not sure I've ever thought of that uh, question. Um, I always loved to play tennis. Always wanted to play against my garage or with my friends growing up. I'd never imagined myself playing in front of 15,000, 20,000 people. It was always very hard for me to feel comfortable in that kind of setting, um, but I got a little better at it. Um, but I think that not everyone grows up with this plan to be number one in the world or parents that are pushing them to, to get there. I kind of did it on my own, my own path and I think for everybody, you can have certain goals. You can adjust along the way and kind of see what happens.
4: Well, LD, I've got so many fond memories of watching you play. Um, when you won in '98, the U.S. Open and I got to see you overpower Martina Hingis, that was unbelievably impressive. What was more impressive to me was the next year when you played Steffi. Because I thought her style of play with the slice, keeping the ball low out of your strike zone would be challenging, especially in the finals of Wimbledon. Do you have any recollection of that match at all?
5: I do. I think of all the grand slams, um, I remember 99 Wimbledon um, pretty clearly. I had a lot of things kind of fell in my way. It rained so much that tournament. We played quarters, semis, finals uh, the last three days um, in the semis. She had a really tough match, 6-4 in the third, I think. I had an easier match, and so I felt maybe the next day was a little fresher. Um, but something just kind of clicked in that Wimbledon, and I wasn't that nervous. I wasn't that stressed about what was going on. And I just kind of let the tennis flow. And in the final, I remember I won the first set. We were on serve kind of late in the second, and this kind of stray rain cloud came through. Normally now, these days, they would close the roof. Obviously, then we had a short delay of about 30, 40 minutes. And I remember I was that right then I was starting to freak out. And I got to spend about 20, 30 minutes with my coach, Robert, who was amazing. and just told me, like, you've got this. Very rarely did he ever speak to me like that. And I remember that rain delay really calming me down and allowing me to maybe finish that match. And um, never thought I'd win Wimbledon.
9: Lindsay, it's Jim. Before you had your uh, initial single successive majors, you had quite a bit in doubles. Was that kind of a key for you to, to find the belief in yourself uh, that you could do it in singles by having lifted major titles as a, as a doubles player already?
5: Absolutely. I think that that's not used enough now, especially on the WTA. Again, for other personalities, it is a little bit easier, maybe. Someone like Coco Goff comes around once in a generation so comfortable at 15 and 16. Um, with her place and what she's going to achieve um, for me it was baby steps and on the doubles court won my first major with Mary Joe Fernandez at the French Open in 1996 and that felt like the biggest accomplishment of all time and slowly but surely I started to gain the confidence mm-hmm. and belief that I might be able to do that on a singles court
1: Back to back tennis channel broadcasters, Lindsay, then Jim, another guy who just loves to talk about himself and his career. <laughs> <laughs> gotta ask you, Jim. Uh, you said that, that being ranked number one was a badge of honor that you were proud to wear. What were the emotions like when you got to that top spot?
9: Well, it was. uh, I remember I got it in uh, a tournament in San Francisco. Barry McKay had a tournament that we played right after the Australian Open, and I needed to make the finals to reach number one. And I had to grind. I think I won all four matches en route to the finals in three sets, and I was out of gas by the time I got to the finals. Michael Chan beat me pretty easily, but I was so sort of relieved in a way to have finally done it, even if I was only going to hold it for one week, which was a possibility. Um, I ended up holding it for a little bit more than that, but I was in a real dogfight with Stefan Edberg at that point for the ranking. But just to get to the top of the mountain and to stand there for one minute was uh, was a, just a culmination of, of every all the work that I'd done and all of that my family and friends and coaches had put, uh, put behind me as well. So. It was awesome. It's something that, that travels with you, as Lindsay knows. Um, it's part of your biography going forward, so I'm, I'm proud of that for sure. And, um, you know, we played in a tough era. Both Lindsay and I both had a lot of tough competition around us. So, um, you know, it, it was, uh, we're lucky to, to get what we got and, and certainly worked hard for it.
2: The countdown reached its conclusion on Friday with the top 10 players in the history of tennis being the focus. As mentioned earlier, this list was created over eight years ago and is ready for some updates. I think now is an appropriate time. Our new pal Andy Roddick rejoined the show to share his top 10 GOAT list in 2020, why he found it practically impossible to rank them out, and what the future might hold for the pursuit of the top spot, here now on the TC Live podcast.
1: Andy, it is time to reveal your top 10 players of all time. Who do you have? Pressure.
3: So with the original list, I didn't change much from the list as it was uh, back when Tennis Channel originally aired this. Uh, the three questions that, that were obvious to me were who's Serena gonna replace, who's Novak gonna replace, and what are Steve Weissman and Prakash
1: gonna do for haircuts during the lockdown? That's gonna get <laughs> shaggy a little gross. you guys not very well. That is a valid question because I'm not <laughs> able to get uh, those are the three that are Okay, been
5: stressing No me out. no particular uh, order, Andy. Come on.
1: I can't go order
3: like I just. It's just. It, it's such a loser game it. to like love it. Compare my flavor to Pete Sampras and whatever else. But I, I I had to put Serena in. I actually took uh I took Margaret Court out, and I know that's it, it's not something that it's might not be well received just based on the fact that she is the all-time slam leader. I do give uh I do put significance in that she won 11 Australian Opens. A lot of those when when nobody was there. But uh, also there's there's just no chance that I was gonna. Drop Billie Jean King from this list, who is, who is number 10. Uh, when you look at the Mount Rushmore tennis, you want to be able to look at it proudly. You want to be able to look at it. This is the best possible version of our sport, and that exists with Billie Jean King over Margaret Court, uh, in, in my opinion. And so it, uh, then the conversation for, for me moved on
4: from... Excuse me? Was it hard for you to keep Bjorn out? Bjorn?
3: Okay. Yeah, so I, I, I put Novak in. Um, he had to go in, obviously. He, he's going to go somewhere, but uh i had to take borg out which felt horrible i felt like a bad person (laughs) taking borg out of the top 10 i don't even know how you do that i won't be able to look at him i won't be able to shake his hand anytime (laughs) i see him him, forever i'm gonna run out of the room in absolute shame the guy is the coolest person that has ever lived but he is not in my top 10 list and i feel terrible about it
5: okay paul these are my top 10 players also although i had to put mine in order are these your same players, without giving too much away?
4: Looks pretty familiar. Yep.
5: Okay.
4: There may be one <laughs> difference. Choices, Andy.
3: Yeah, and and the, the other thing with the the the, the conversation that well, one part of the conversation that I struggled with was, okay, Borg retires at at twenty six. Had been so dominant, so it's tough not to play the 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 game of hypotheticals, right? So how do you value Borg's eleven versus? Pete's 14 with the fact that you feel like Borg left a lot on the table, but you can only deal with what is right. You can only deal with the facts that are out there. So it's hard for me to sit back and say he would have retired, but we're going to give him slams uh, because he retired too soon. I just, I couldn't get over that, that, uh, that hump. And um, again, I, I just, I I'm judging myself for leaving Borg out. All
4: right. All right, Andy, here's putting you on the spot here. Let's play the what if game. Cause you're a great speculative person. Borg at 26. How many more French Opens would he have won if he played as long as he played? Would we would he have Nadal numbers or not?
3: I don't think I don't, I don't think Nadal numbers quite there. Um, you know the, the game has kind of extended itself as far as uh, you've seen Roger, Rafa, Novak. It's a new thing. You know your your guy Pete I think was 32 when he stopped. Andre was 36 and they they they, they kind of felt like they were long at that point on the male side. So to pretend like Bjorn was automatically going to play to 32-33, I think that's a bit of revisionist history, so uh, he would have won a bunch more. But I don't, I don't think he would have been at the same same level as Rafa.
1: If you had to do it, Andy, who's number one? That's what so
3: we want to hear. Right now, you know, for me, it's 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 Roger and Serena. I will, I will, I will throw this out there though. Um, if Novak somehow gets to the point where he's tied for the all time slams record, right, with Rafa, Roger. Then, for me, it becomes very important on the head-to-head, you go to the Masters titles. The fact that Novak, basically against everyone in the world that he's played more than a couple times, has a winning record against all the people that are in this conversation also is insane. You know, have a head-to-head winning record against Roger, Rafa, Murray, you know, on so on and so forth, I think if Novak is tied with total slams at the end, it's gonna be really tough to argue against his resume.
2: Thanks again to Andy Roddick for joining TC Live this week and breaking down the greatest players of all time. After Andy, it was the rest of the gang's turn to list their top 10 players. Here now is Lindsey Davenport, Paul Anacone, and Prakash Armitrage giving their picks in order of numbers 10 to 1 in tennis history.
1: All right, Prakash, you are first up. We're going to put on the screen
10: 10 through 6, and then you'll take us 5 to 1. Uh, Well, listen, it's tough enough going, you know, different generations, but you're also going men and women here. So I I had to throw Billie Jean in there. Presidential Medal of Freedom. She's on the greatest list for anyone. You cannot ignore 24 Grand Slam titles. So Margaret Court made in there. Pete was in there just because I think he is just the most clutch. But Court got in there. And then after that, you could make a case for anyone being the greatest of all time. Chrissy winning so much. Novak. Martina, of course, winning everything that's ever been offered in the sport in all the Grand Slam singles, doubles, and mix. It's, it's, it's a tough one after you get after you get down to the top eight. All right, so you got Rafa there at five. Keep going, Rafa? Prakash. Well, you got Rafa. Oh, you're going to take you through like this. Okay. Well, we got Rafa in there. Rafa was originally higher because he's won multiple Wimbledons. Better has won one French. But I did put him in there because I started to go a little bit more the numbers so rafa's at five now but again a couple years things may change steffi gosh could have been higher won absolutely everything that golden slam was huge for me so you know that's why she's so high she has 22 grand slams again as Lindsay said retired so young raj at number three going by the numbers he's you know obviously got the most grand slams out there on the men's side A lot of people, you know, will question why I didn't put him higher, but I put Rocket at number two because he's got a couple of grand slams. And I just think there's so much pressure when trying to achieve that. You got both of that. You got to go with him. And number one, I went with Miss S. I went with Serena Williams because she won four in a row majors twice in her career. She's got multiple gold medals. But for me, the big, big factor is... I really think she's transcended the sport in a way that I don't think we've seen anyone else do. She's crossed into pop culture. She's a historical icon, along with her sister Venus. So, Serena, you're my goat. (laughs) And that really
1: shows you how much has changed in the last eight years when this list was first made, because she wasn't in the top ten. Now she's number one for Prakash. All right, Lindsay, we're going to put up on the screen ten through six. Take us through five, down to one.
5: Yeah, similar to Andy and the list that came out eight years ago. The two that came out for me in the top 10 were Margaret Court and Bjorn Borg. Um, there was no way that Billie Jean was getting out of my list. Uh, started with Peter 10, then Chrissy Billie Jean, Martina, then Novak. I think that Novak in the next year will definitely move higher on my list. Um, then I put um, Laver in at number 8, 7, 6, 5, number 4. It's a tie. I have co number three. I couldn't decide between (laughs) Roger. The 20 grand slam for Roger, but singles gold medal for Rafa really weighed on it. Rafa's head to head. They are co number three. They are not team four. Number two was Steph. You look at her results and all the grand slams. She was in the top two for over 10 years. So dominant, I think she would have added even more. I don't think she got the correct due on our list eight years ago. I think she should have been higher for how dominant she was. The Golden Slam as well in 88. And number one, I agree with her, gosh, it's Serena. Greatest of all time, in my opinion, when you consider not only the singles, but also the doubles, her longevity, everything she's been able to accomplish. And I give her extra props for winning a major while pregnant. Serena, you're my go to well.
1: All right, Paul, it is down to you. We have Serena from Prakash, Serena from Linz. Who do you have? There's your 10 through 6. Take us the rest of the way.
4: Well, a couple qualifiers. I think the concept is so difficult. I'm always a company guy, but I just don't think you can compare ears. But I'm going to do the best I can, you guys. And it makes it even more complicated with the men and women. So there's a 10 through 6. Let's go down to... To number five, and we have Steffi Graf there at number five with her immaculate record. I look at all of these players basically as number ones. They've been so spectacular in so many ways, over 350 weeks at number one for Graf. Then you have Nadal right in front of her at number four. And then sneaking in ahead of Nadal, I threw in Serena Williams at number three. And uh, the number two and number one will not be shocking to you all at home. My big thing, too, really, is everyone that's still playing, I don't want to put a number next to any of them because I think this is going to change. Uh, But like I said, anyone five or above is still number one to me as far as I look at it.
1: It's all subjective. You did a great job. Two votes for Serena, one for Roger Federer, and that's where we're at right now
2: thanks to everyone out there for listening to this week's tc live podcast remember that you can find every episode on the tennis podcast network just go to tennis.com podcast you'll find all the tc live podcasts as well as a lot of other good shows on the tennis podcast network it'll auto populate to your devices if you subscribe so make sure you do that wherever podcasts are found you can get your tc live podcast there big thanks to stan smith and who we'll be hearing a lot from in the future and everybody that had something to do with this show All the people behind the scenes as well putting in time, especially during this climate, uh, to contribute to this show means a lot. And uh, thanks again to everybody out there for listening. We're trying to provide some entertainment. We will have shows the next couple weeks for sure. I know it's a challenging time. I know it's tough for everybody out there. We're going to provide you with some entertainment to give you something to do and something to look forward to each week. So thanks again. hope everybody out there is in good spirits, staying safe. I'm Mitch Michaels, and this was the Tennis Channel Live Podcast.